Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams, and this is Dart Against Humanity. This is Dart Against Humanity, episode number 33. Here's what's funny. I just spent 50 minutes recording a full episode of Dart Against Humanity, got to the end. As I was getting to the end, I was discussing a different topic. And when I started discussing that topic, I realized that the previous 50 minutes I spent were bullshit. So I deleted the episode like that. And then I started doing this one. Because I thought to myself, as I was saying what I was saying, how in the fuck am I in the episode with this when I could have been starting with this? When I could have led with this? So all that shit I said 50 minutes ago, y'all never going here. And it's probably for the best. So, um, one of the things that's changed about this podcast is my mindset in doing it. The first, the first episode, the first season of this uh, uh, Dart Against Humanity was thirteen episodes, and it was akin to when you have a, a television show at a network or on Netflix. Typically, you know, thirteen episodes for a season makes sense. Sometimes it's too many. Sometimes it's just to be nine or ten. Sometimes it's just to be eight. In the UK, you can do four or six. I've explained this before. However, the first season of Dart Against Humanity was easy. It kind of flew by because, again, 13 episodes. I could do that in my sleep, standing on my head. Another thing is I didn't have a podcast before. So all this shit that I had that I wanted to talk about, that I wanted to do from the previous podcast, which no longer exists. I mean, it was replaced by this one. I could take those topics, flip them, and do them in a different way, this podcast. So, bam, got those 13 episodes out the way. Had my break. I didn't need a long break because I wanted to get back to this. And I was like, yo, I'm going to do 22 episodes the next season because that 13... That shit was a walk in the park. That shit was a walk by the Charles River. That was nothing. I could do this shit easy in my sleep. I underestimated how hard the back nine are. I began to realize that sometimes I would say shit in podcast episodes that I've said previously. I bring up things that I brought up previously and I don't like repeating myself that much. Uh, so one of the things that like Stretch Armstrong used to do, because he, he's the DJ, he plays the records, right? He didn't like playing the same shit a lot. He didn't like playing the same record twice sometimes because it would get old for him. And it was like something he prided, he, he prided himself on. A lot of DJs did this, but he especially was influential doing it because, again, Stretch and Bob. And people would, their entire week would be planned around, I'm going to be up for this show. So me, I don't want to fucking repeat myself a whole lot because the fact of the matter is, I kind of want every episode to stand on its own and be like, yo, episode 22 is about or when you said this or episode 27 when this happened or episode 9 or 4 I don't want to be like yo that shit you said in episode 9 
14, 17, 21, 23, 24, 26. I don't want to be that dude. Because the fuck? Why? So I kind of want to talk about things and have each episode have a theme. I really would love for that to happen. And, you know, one thing that I noticed recently. So I've been working in this different space now where I'm trying to make something happen. I'm trying to get something off the ground. I'm trying to make something materialize. So a lot of times I have an idea for an episode and I don't really want to do it because I could pitch this to somebody or mark or not market, but package it as something to someone and it can become something that I can sell or pitch to someone in a situation where I can change my life. Because those opportunities aren't coming in this space that I'm in. They're just not. When you're a 43-year-old man and you write about things and things about like hip-hop, culture, rap history, or the continuum of black music, from a historical standpoint, those aren't, that ain't the shit that's hot right now. You know what I'm saying? I don't write about the lulls and the rainbow hair shit and the emo cloud shit. I don't, I don't even fuck with SoundCloud like that anymore unless somebody has a podcast up. So I'm out completely out of that space. I don't care about the sensational story du jour. All everybody wants to do is get their fucking jokes and memes off. I want substance. I wait for an angle or something that I would be able to bring differently to the story, a different perspective. And I'm not going to stick around too long to try to find it because I don't really give a fuck anyway. And it's not like anybody's going to be willing to buy it from me. So there's no incentive. So I need to find something in my lane that I really care about, that I'm passionate about, that I'm super knowledgeable about, that not really many people even give a fuck about or or care to do the legwork to execute. And then that's going to be my thing, my idea. And I've been working on that. And when you're doing that, you don't... I know why a lot of people who finally got their dream job or got their position, who used to be heavy on social media and shit like that, don't really come back to it. Because one, they're busy. And two, they don't really want to like fuck up the money or they don't want to um, drive negative attention to themselves to have to have crisis PR and shit like that. Because you can do that in, in several ways. One, you could do something just being an asshole, being a dick, being an idiot. Or like being racist. Or, because you're an asshole, a dick, and a racist. Or, you could be the person who thinks you're saying something that's profound 
and you're fucking doing this for your people and you're speaking up, but it turns out to seem like it turns out to be anti-black, problematic, haterish, and maybe a little racist. Gina Rodriguez, I'm talking about you. Yeah, yeah. So um, I noticed that. I have to figure out that thing and do it. And that adjustment is uncomfortable. That transition is scary, but you have to take that leap of faith. So I'm in this weird fucking space right now or this weird transitional period right now where there are things that I used to do without thinking that I just can't stop thinking about or I'm not going to do. The certain shit, I can't tell you how many times I was about to tweet something and I'm like, nah, I just delete that because why? What's the fucking point? You don't know who's reading, you don't know who's watching, I'm not going to do that. Not saying I'm censoring myself, but it's just like, what's the fucking point? There's a difference between I'm scared to tweet this because I'll lose the bag versus I don't want to have to deal with the fucking trolls right now. Because I will say some shit and get the trolls and not give a fuck. Just like the shit that I said about uh, Barstool Sports. Fuck them. I don't care. Just like back when I did that shit talking about um, Adam 22 and No Jumper. Fuck them. Fuck him. I don't care. I usually get it. When I get interviewed, I get asked about uh, backlash. And I tell them, like, I don't really get backlash that I give a fuck about. Because typically, it's either fuckboys, racists trolls or people who are fucking up the game because they don't know what they're doing and they're writing ahistorical and inaccurate shit so that's not backlash I'm doing my job if you're a writer and you're calling out inconvenient truths and you care about accuracy and you don't like lies And you want people to actually uphold the tenets of journalism? Then if people come after you for that, is that backlash? No. You're doing your job. Yay. Good for you. But one thing that I've been doing, right, is I've been going through the history of funk and soul R&B, the black, the black diaspora, the continuum of black music. I've done it a lot with hip hop. I've written a lot of shit about hip hop that nobody else thought to do or cared to do or, or covered before like I did. Then there are people that go into spaces and they do stuff and it catches on. And people are like, why don't you do that? And I'm like, why would I? They got that shit covered. I always get asked like, yo, how come you're not doing anything on pause tapes? Because Gino got that covered. Gino's doing a piece about pause tapes for um, Red Bull Music Academy. Dope. If you want to be interviewed by him about the pause tapes or whatever, I probably will be too, you know. Hit him up. I'm not going to fucking jump into that. He got that covered. It's something he was passionate about that he wanted to do. I heard about it. I was like, word, go do that. I'm going to be over here. There's plenty of space for everybody. Provided you actually give a fuck about something and you're passionate about it. One of the things I'm passionate about is the fucking history of like covering black music, especially spaces and 
parts where there's like a dearth. There's a void. Nobody's really fucking covered this. And the thing is that there's so much work that you need to do and so much research that you have to do and so much of a fucking knowledge base that you need to have that a lot of people aren't going to fucking do it anyway. But again, you don't want to tip your hand because if you do, somebody else will come up with the shit and you'll be like, fuck. Now you got something competing when you're trying to get something going off the ground to change your life because you're in a space where what you do isn't really valued. There isn't a big fucking dollar sign on this shit. You have to turn it gourmet. Know what I'm saying? Before you could fucking change the dollar price on it. Before you could change the price point on it. And that's pretty much what I'm, I'm doing. Jazz, again, was the black music that got the high valuation. But what ended up happening, I've told you before. And now I'm actually doing what I said I wasn't going to do, repeat shit. Is it changed its valuation so that now it's seen as high art. But when it became high art, the flip side was the black folks kind of stopped fucking with it because there was other shit that they could have gone to that, you know, felt more like it was for them. And this has happened time and time and time again. Now, the difference being is that in this space, I have to do kind of the thing where I have to explain to people why, hey, This is actually high art, something that people want, something that people clamoring for, something that people will pay for, something that people have wanted their entire lives, but it doesn't exist now, so let's fucking jump on this. And one of the big things that's helping is the fact that Mike Judge, uh, season two of his show, um, Tales from the Tour Bus, first season was country. I didn't pay too much attention to it because... I didn't really give a fuck about or care too much about about 66% of the people he covered that first season. It's not that I didn't know who they were. It's just I didn't care about them enough, deep enough. Like, oh, watching it is interesting. But it wasn't like I was excited going in. I know that name. Let's see what's actually pop going on. And it wasn't like I was talking about it on social media. Nobody was. Even if they watched it. Because it just happened. This season is different. I'm totally 100% invested in him telling stories about funk. Because my whole life I've been hearing some of these stories. And the thing is that since these motherfuckers did a lot of drugs. And people be exaggerating. I didn't know the veracity of many of these stories. But the way Mike Judge does it. He goes to somebody who probably did a lot of drugs. And probably isn't the most, um, the best um, eyewitness, you know what I'm saying? The most uh, reliable person. And then he gets other people to either corroborate the story or give an alternate take on it. To give it full context. Now, this season has been amazing. He's done, uh, he did a two-parter on Rick James, which, mind-blowing. Um... He did an episode, Bootsy Collins. And he did an episode, the last episode was George Clinton. The next episode is going to be James Brown. Of course, all these people are attached. For those of you that don't understand, uh, I'm going to explain one thing. And I kind of struggled with saying this, but I've said it on fucking Twitter before. And the fact of the matter is that not everybody could really go in depth 
to it. But for my money, the two most important mutinies in black music history that changed the course of black music forever. James Brown's band mutiny, which led to Bobby Bird getting Bootsy Collins, Catfish, and their boy from um, Cincinnati, Ohio, who used to always play James Brown joints at their gigs. Because, of course, in Cincinnati, Ohio, is also the home of King Records where Rick, I mean, where um, James Brown performed and recorded all his shit. So when the band got pissed off at James because he was being too rigid and not allowing them to stretch the funk, as it were, James Brown was a um, dictator, as it were. He had his vision. And the thing is that if you don't know a lot about James Brown, James Brown didn't really read music. And a lot of times his the people in his band would come up with the grooves, you know, that he would work around. So a lot of records per say produced by James Brown, but the fact of the matter is they're the intellectual property of people in the band. Now let this happen years and years and years and years and years and years, and, years and something happens and he finds you, and then sometimes you don't get paid what you think you're gonna get paid. Uh James is doing well, he got planes and shit, you're not getting paid more money. And then you're not allowed your own freedom within the James Brown funky world or his recording process or his performance either. What's going to happen is you're going to get pissed off. The band mutinied. They bring in Bootsy and his his brother and his boys. They're young. He brings in young energy, which is necessary. It changed James Brown's sound. But of course, James Brown, of course, jettisoned them. Uh, they became a band on their own, known as the House Guests. They, they of course, get introduced to um, George Clinton, who had Parliament and the Funkadelics. Bootsy imparts the knowledge that he got from James Brown with his brother Catfish and his boy they join Parliament Funkadelic and Parliament Funkadelic shoots up into another stratosphere from there that's the first super important band mutiny change James Brown's sound change Parliament Funkadelic sound change George Clinton Made Bootsy a superstar, launched the P Funk Empire, and all their offshoots and affiliates. All right? Second most important mutiny in black music history. History kind of repeated itself with Prince. Prince, of course, had a band. The band kicked around for a while, people left, people came in, he replaced them. Then when they finally formed between. 1999 in the in the way that we know them 1999 and purple rain they became the revolution officially because they weren't always the revolution it was prince and prince was the i guess prince was the name of the band because it wasn't just prince so prince was the band 
it becomes Prince and the Revolution. Now, you had Prince and the Revolution, but you also had the time. You have to keep in mind that Prince, of course, wrote, played, came up with most, the overwhelming majority of the material for the time albums. There were contributions with Morris, I believe um, Jesse Johnson, stuff here and there. Uh, in the time, you had Jam and Lewis. Jam and Lewis, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis would go off and they would produce for other people. They would do outside work, produce for other people, and then be in the time. They would play in the time on the road because Prince would play all the shit in the studio. Okay, so think about Jelly Bean Johnson not playing on the records, but playing live. And they do a lot of live gigs. Uh, think about Jim Lewis not playing on the records, but playing on other people's records, producing other people's records. At the time, Prince has them on the road making hits with the time. Uh, think about Monty Moore. Not playing on the records, but fucking producing and writing for other people. Jesse Johnson. Barely getting work with Prince and under time and playing on records and con con contributing to shit in the studio. But really, he has the chops to go out and produce for other people and he ends up going off and doing it anyway. Uh, then we go to the revolution. You have um, David Z, whose brother was a producer, and he was a producer. I believe his last name was Riv Rivkin. Uh, from a from a musical family, had the chops to do all this other shit. Doesn't because Prince don't allow it. Um, Wendy and Lisa, phenomenal songwriting, arranging, production duo in their own right. They don't really get the chance to do. A whole bunch of shit within print with, with Prince because Prince is Prince. Uh, Mark Brown, as we know him, Brown Mark, who Prince gives the opportunity to produce for, I believe, Maserati. But you know, again, doesn't really do much. With, every Prince does damn near everything. You know what I'm saying? He has certain people that he allows to play on shit, or certain people he allows to contribute certain things. Two songs on albums, but for the most part, it's overwhelmingly him. So this mutiny was important because the time really rebelled. And for the most part, the members of the time went off with Jam and Lewis, who he had fired before anyway. And they became part of Flight Time. If you look at Flight Time and look at their production credits on some of their records past a certain year, you'll see Jam and Lewis. You'll also see Jelly Bean Johnson. Jelly Bean Johnson produced the crucial dance remix that they performed in that video that's going around on um on Twitter at the uh, American Music Awards or was it the Soul Train Awards? When um actually it was in the Bobby Brown story and if you watch the if you watch the footage, you'll see that there's uh Whitney Houston right there in the front. And she starts bugging out when they come out and they start on performing performing to it. But that was one of the the most fire 
fucking um, remixes of 1989 done by Jelly B. Johnson. Um, but all those guys that I just mentioned from like the time, aside from uh, Morris Day, went with Flight Time. Morris Day, of course, went solo. He recorded, I think, two s- successful solo albums. Produced them himself because he was probably the best drummer. No, nah, probably. He was the best drummer in the time. But he rarely got the drum on records. But he went off and he produced, he made his own two successful albums, had several hits on his own. So that mutiny, and then of course Prince made a side project called The Family, kind of in response to that mutiny, made a song called Mutiny. So all these artists come out and have their own careers, Jesse Johnson included, all come out and have their own careers and change the, the, the fucking trajectory of black music going forward due to this mutiny Wendy and Lisa included I don't know if y'all know about their um their music I believe their first album came out I think they worked with David Z um uh Bobby Z uh I believe their first album came out around my 12th birthday in 1987 I was born on August 17th um check that google it whatever the fuck I'm pretty sure I know cuz when I was 12 I remember going and seeing it it was new um, and that's my memory. But they made some incredible music. I don't think I don't think a lot of people are really up on it. But uh, those two mutinies changed the music going forward. And I don't think anyone's ever written about that or gone in depth about it, written a book about it, or done a piece about it, nothing. And I just put that out there, and I'm not really second guessing it because if someone does it, fine, whatever. And also, you just you got a lot of fucking homework. You got a lot of work to do because that's a lot of fucking shit to cover, a lot of background information. So whatever. But like um, watching this, there's several things that I noticed. Uh, history kind of repeats itself, and when it comes to music history, same thing. So um. A lot of us are familiar with Harry Allen. Harry Allen worked closely with Public Enemy. He was kind of their minister of information. He was their media arm. Their their PR, so to speak. He would like come up with statements for the group and things like that. So he was very important. And of course, they known Harry going back to the Adelphi days when they were Spectrum City. So it makes sense. Now, a lot of people thought that this was, you know, a new wrinkle for hip hop. But the fact of the matter is, History repeats itself in music. This this has happened before. If you go back to the days of Parliament Funkadelic, you had a man named George Vickers. George Vickers was called their Minister of Information. He was a journalist. He was a music journalist. And what he did was he would review... Parliament Funkadelic and back in the days when music reviews mattered and there was a divide a clear divide between the layman and the critic 
because the critic was looked at as an expert. But nowadays with real-time social media and the speed of um, communications technology and the overall mediocrity of the people that actually do the reviews due to their knowledge base or what have you, everybody feels they're a fucking critic. Now, before, if you did critique something, you realize, I kind of feel that people realize that I'm a lay person. This is just how I feel. And there is a, there's a void between me and this person who earned this space, who, who, who knows what they know, who has this knowledge base, who's here and knows what they know about. Unless, of course, it was a fucking rock writer who knew nothing about hip hop writing about hip hop and rap, in which case, fucking No. But that's gone now. So when George Vickers was tapped by George Clinton to be their minister of information, he's like, you get it. You understand the funk. You understand what we're trying to do here. And you can explain this shit. And of course, we need somebody to do that and get the get the word out. So he was that guy, a journalist. Um, just like Harry Allen did for Public Enemy. And of course, if you go back, one of the big things that changed Def Jam, I don't care what anybody says, why would anybody say otherwise? I just realized why I say that. The biggest, I think one of the biggest game changers for Def Jam was Bill Adler. Bill Adler was the guy that made Def Jam's ascent really possible. Bill Adler was the man who said, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tell everybody this record's out. We're going to inform everybody how it's doing. We're going to get our names in these publications. You guys have to do stories on what Def Jam's doing. They have the ear of the youth. They're a new hot thing in black music. This And black music is fucking changing the landscape of music, period. Uh... We need to make this shit happen at MTV where they start playing Run DMC records. Like, like this shit is a lot Bill Adler. Every time when um, fucking LL Cool J's radio came out and that shit hit the charts, both black music and the Hot 200 and started going up the charts, Bill Adler made it a point to let everybody know that shit was happening. When it went gold, let everybody know. Get this shit in Billboard. Platinum, let everybody know. Get this motherfucker on America on, on fucking American Bandstand and Soul Train. Everybody's talking about LL Cool J. Then they follow up with, you know what I'm saying? Run DMC had already done shit with Run DMC. Then of course they blow it up with King of Rock, which gets on MTV. Then of course the fucking sky's the limit when they come out with Raising Hell. Then Def Jam comes out with the Beastie Boys. Then LL Cool J comes out with fucking um, Bigger and Deffer. It's a rap. All these things are possible because Bill Adler made sure the media knew and pushed it. Crush Groove. So having somebody to write and catalog things and document things and frame it is super important. And and one of and before I think one of the episodes starts, 
with Tales from the Tour Bus, Mike Judge says that it's weird how little documentation and history has been recorded in regards to funk music, the genre. And this is something that I discovered when I would go on my rants on Twitter talking about um, Boston funk. And it again began because uh, Nelson George, who I've run afoul of a couple of times, made a documentary called Finding the Funk. I think it came out in either 2012 or 2013. I think it was made in 2012 and it aired in 2013. One of them. And I'm watching this documentary because, of course, I live for this shit. Live for the funk, die for the funk. Um, I'm waiting. I'm seeing all these regions covered. All these important places in the history of funk music. All of them. Seeing them all covered. Going in depth. Talking about all these dating. You know, going in like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I, oh okay. You didn't miss that? All right, good. Got that? Got those bands? Great. I'm good. I'm good. Good. So we going to get, oh, Plainfield, New Jersey. That's where, um yeah, okay. We, we go, yeah, we're getting there. So we're about to get to Boston. We're about to get to Boston. We never get to Boston. For those of you that don't know, without Boston Funk and the Boston Funk All-Stars and Boston Funk slash Space Funk, Setting the template for what ends up being electro or termed electro when it was actually just Boston funk. Black music is fucked. And not only that, but hip hop is fucked. Because the in-house production team, again, I've explained this, for Tommy Boy were Boston funk all-stars. Comprised of two groups. Planet Patrol. Johnson Crew. But there were small groups and players and musicians and producers like Tony Rose. Uh, there were guys that were legends here like um, Prince Charles Alexander. There's just a long list of guys. Uh, Gordon Megabucks Worthy. Larry Wu. So many guys. I'm trying to think of who produced this party's jam packed. This party's jam packed. And you know that Cornell Brown, who went on to um, be an engineer. And work, do a lot of work for Bad Boy and all those related labels. The guy who produced Bounce is Your Birthday, which 50 Cent used. Had Boss Town recordings, which Bobby Brown actually invested in. But when you ask him, he acts like he doesn't remember. <sighs> but yeah, there's a lot. Uh, Dwayne Omar. Dwayne Omar is his name. Um, but there are a lot of things that Boston did that, you know, nobody's talked about, nobody's ever covered. And I'm going to actually do that. I'm actually going to work on that. I'm going to have a, have a sit down 
and I'm going to actually flesh out some of these things that I want to do. I want the world to know who the fucking energetics were. You know, it's important that black music understands who the energetics were. We knew, you know about New Edition. New Edition is the culmination of a whole bunch of greatness that comes from the Boston funk lineage and also the talent show circuit, which we were fucking. I put us up against anybody, any era, anywhere, any fucking universe. Boston's going to win. Roxbury's going to win. We'll fuck everybody up. That's just what it is. Now, that frustration and realizing that, yo, nobody's covered this. It's something that needs to be told and we need to get the story out. But now we got to go up against something because who gives a fuck? You know what I'm saying, people? Every time you come up with an idea, no matter how good that idea might be, no matter how valid it is, no matter how much of a void it might be, the real question is, who fucking cares? Because the thing that matters most is money. Who's going to buy it? Is this something that's needed enough that people are going to clamor for it and buy it? And a lot of times the people with money, the people up here, the people who make the decisions do not really fully value things the way they should. Or maybe they just there's no way they would anyway to understand that this would be a cash cow because they're looking at a different set Of numbers or metrics or what have you. They have a different valuation system. This is why. uh, This is why people use apps like. Any app that where people just like use to like raise money. To get their things uh, funded. Because the fact of the matter is that you realize, all right, I have this thing, I have this idea. I'm going to do my presentation and rather than bring it to people with money or a publishing company or a film studio or developmental people or producers, I'm going to present it to the people. I'm going to bring this to Kickstarter. I'm going to try to get my funding that way. And what happens is you have to hope you go viral and you have to hope that you generate enough interest that there's a groundswell of people who are willing to fork over money. Take my money. This is what you want to happen. And they pay. And they're like, yo, we need to see this shit happen. Make it happen. Because here's the thing. When you haven't made something happen before, I've seen a lot of instances where, where people get the money and they're like, yeah, we got it funded. Now you have to put this shit out timely. Like, we want to see this materialize. I can tell you several instances in which something got funded through a crowd 
crowdfunding and it's been a while uh but it's not like they stole the money we get updates but you know it's slow going uh, i think a perfect example is a film i was really really interest super interested in uh super invested in years ago the last black man in san francisco if you watch the original trailer for that it's fucking engrossing it is engrossing it's amazing it hit me right in the chest because i'm somebody who was um evicted from my home of the first 24 like the first 24 years of my life between 1975 and 1999 we were evicted i was quite literally my mom started having contractions in our apartment she had just moved into and a couple blocks down the street was then Boston City Hospital, now Boston Medical Center, where she had me. I lived my entire life in that apartment on that corner, Mass, Tremont, other corner was Mass and Columbus. And his story was about somebody who grew up with his entire family for generations in a house in San Francisco. And they lost the house. He had to move far away from San Francisco. And every time he got an opportunity, he would travel back to his old house. Sit in the curb in front of it and plot on ways to get it back. And I fucking related to that so long because I've lived in this co-op in this apartment for going on 20 years it'll be 20 years this coming spring and it was a hard adjustment for me the first couple of years i would leave the apartment i would walk the blocks to my old spot on 47 mass ave i would sit on the stoop and i would dream about ways in which i would get rich and buy up that entire building and get it back and turn it into something else for the city. Maybe sometime. And, and the thing is, I never dreamt of fucking going back and living there because by that time, it wasn't even the place I, I grew up in. I see pictures of my old apartment and I'm just like, it's so fucking different. I'm also one of those people that, um, you know how my memory works. I remember old numbers and all this other shit from like the card, the cardboard that my mom had over the phone, which was plugged into the wall, which had a long cord and you could dial or you could press the numbers because I'm so old that I do remember having a rotary phone. But I remember my old phone number and sometimes I get the urge to dial it just to see who answers shit like that. So I really related to this film and I think I saw the first trailer for it maybe more than three years ago and it still hasn't come out even though I do know that in 2018 April between April and September 2018 I know they did principal photography and I feel like they started filming and they had the cast up and shit like that so it will probably come out sometime in 2019 but this guy had that shit up like 2014 I believe. I can't imagine putting five years of my life into a fucking project. 
But it's funny because if these things happen for me, hopefully, and shit comes out 2019, 20, uh, 2020, whatever, I fucking had those ideas since 20, 2007, 2008, 2006. But I haven't actively been working on that one project for five straight years. That would drive me insane. When I'm writing an article or a piece for more than fucking five days, I start going crazy. I wrote an entire um, hip-hop course curriculum. uh, Ten weeks. uh, Full text, bibliography, filmography, um, suggested reading. On top of that extra shit. Uh, a, a fucking uh, a list of YouTube YouTubeable things, all that shit. I believe I did that entire thing. It was like thirty five thousand words, something stupid. I think it was like thirty five thousand words when it was over, and combined. I think I did that all in twenty seven days, ten full weeks. Like books, reading materials. I had a special section for shit that's out of print. You know what I'm saying? Stuff you could actually YouTube, stuff that you could actually like find in libraries. I did all this work, all this research. Because a lot of it I had done, some of it, a lot of it had done beforehand already. Just, just because I don't sleep, and I was just like, I just need to know what this is on hand. By on, you know what I'm saying? Just know what this is, or how to find it if I ever get the opportunity, and. 27 days so I work kind of fast but also I work 24-7 because I kind of want to see something that I'm working on materialize and actually happen because I'm in the back of my mind afraid of working on the same thing for fucking years and it not happening I know people like yo I've been working on this book for five years like uh, I don't. How long did dude fucking work on Hamilton? I couldn't do that. Hell fucking no. Like, hey, why don't you do this? It takes years to do. I'm not doing one thing for fucking years. I'm. I like to do a, a gang of things over a span of years. That's fucking insane. I mean, if you think about it, the longest I ever spent in one job was three years. And. I quit there because I had spent a tenth of my life working there at the time. And I was going through my um, early midlife, my black Tino midlife crisis because I was turning 30. Because, you know, we don't be living that long. Stress and the government and women. You know what I'm saying? We just don't be living that long. And the thing is that I don't even have high blood pressure. My blood pressure been steady at... Uh, 116 over 80 and 120 over 88 since the fourth grade. I just, I just, I'm low pressure. I don't really give a fuck. And plus, if anybody press me, I just choke the shit out of them. That's what it is. I just crush you. It's what it is. I ain't got time for all the extra shit. So I feel like a lot of people think that I'm like, I'm angry all the time. I'm really a measured person. I'm like really even, even killed. I just seem angry. Like I tweet angry, I guess. I write angry. Because I'm always angry. I'm like the Hulk. Or David Banner in that sense. You know what my secret is? I'm always angry. But to be a black Tino and conscious is to be angry all the time. 
Actually, that ain't mine. I, I borrowed that from somebody. This, 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 this famous Black Order. You, you know what I'm saying? This, you know, the, I, I, you, you probably never heard of him. He probably famous. You know what I'm saying? They, he, they, they, been some documentaries on him. I am not sure Negro. You know what I'm saying? He a little famous. But that's the space I'm in right now. I'm trying to transition into being someone that's actually seeing the fruits of all the years of labor that I've put in finally I've only been doing this shit since 2006 in this capacity I started writing online in 2002 but I was a fucking sports writer I was doing I was writing basketball so when I talk to my other writer friends who are in the same age bracket as I am, who have steady jobs, who have somewhat steady income, but are in different spaces, they're kind of looking at me like, when, when you going to get up here with us? Hmm? I don't want to be the dude to go to dinner with all these people. And when it's time to split the check, they're kind of looking like you, you're going to be able to. You know what I'm saying? Handle your part. Yeah, I got, I got, yeah, I can handle this. Yeah. Cause there's fucking 12 of us here. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. I can handle this. I mean, I'm going to have to fucking, you know, do some con- two consultant jobs and have people PayPal me right after I leave here. But yeah, I got this. is no problem. It's good. Like, don't trip y'all. I'm okay. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Check back in six months. Because again, I'm a creative in this space. Hopefully in six months, I'm in another space where there have been some announcements made. My life has changed so, so slightly. The podcast a little different. My life a little different. Hopefully, if not, season three, we're going to be back on that same shit, on that same struggle trying to climb to the mountaintop. I really don't want that to happen. I want 2019 to be an upgrade from 2018, just like 2018 was an upgrade from 2017. Let's keep that shit going. I don't want to be in the fucking Eastern Conference Finals. I want to get to the finals. And then I want to win the chip. I know you want that to happen. I want it to happen too. All right.